What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, I shouldn't have any more water in the basement. I'm hoping. I think the little pools of water I've been fighting with this morning and afternoon have, uh, might be my last. I'm hoping. I hired a group of guttermen to come out and put new gutters on my house, including a gutter helmet, so I never have to climb up there and clean it. Uh, they got it all done in about, uh, about an hour or so, and unfortunately left a giant uh, runoff spout gutter thing, whatever you call it, cutting right across my back steps, so that's pretty disturbing that I'll have to step over that all the time. Um, And I have a hard time believing there was no other options, so I guess it's up to me to go to Menards and find my own. In other news, uh, I've given up the social media game. It started out with Twitter, thinking it's a way for me to let people know I've got a show up. It's a way of letting people get a hold of me if they want. Uh, Maybe somebody will stumble across it. But then you start looking at the analytics on all your posts and finding out that people are seeing it. And then you start getting obsessed, or I start getting obsessed. So what turned out is just, uh, I'm doing this for fun, turned into, how can I be more popular? And uh, then Instagram, as I've said before, uh, taking very friendly pictures of the one copy of this book I have against idyllic backdrops like a sunlit chair or next to a cup of coffee or by a cat uh, for likes and um, a million hashtags Uh, people see it, they like it but no one's gonna go listen to the show, why did I get involved in that? I've just heard you're supposed to advertise so that's been a giant waste of my time Uh, And then the final straw was, I thought, oh, what if I did a live reading while recording on Twitch? And that was a mistake, uh, because I could barely get the thing figured out. I recorded one chapter, and then I thought I'd record another one, and Twitch said that my music is not public domain and, and silenced me. It was ridiculous. So, I'm back to the basics. Just Twitter just recording I don't know what happened to me I sort of sold out which is sad but I'm back I'm back and I want to thank my fan base for keeping me real keeping me grounded in even more other news the 
weird red blotchiness from broken blood vessels all around my eyes from when I got the food poisoning and throwing up. It's still pretty much there. And I think fine. I work from home right now. Uh, I don't have any real reason to see people except to get groceries. But tonight is my daughter's birthday, which also shouldn't be a big deal. But her school is also making her have an orchestra event, which means I have to go and see other parents. So today I've been frantically scrambling, trying to find any remedy to make all the broken blood vessels go away, or at least not be so dramatic and weird looking. I look like I have some sort of ancient disease. It's pretty creepy. Only option I found was apple cider vinegar that I'm supposed to apply to my skin. So I'll be doing that and probably making things look worse, but I'm doing it for my baby. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do. And uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed just like you. And maybe your kid in the back seat. Have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself, who are these people? Who's the guy with the labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me? Uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds, the cars outside the window, the creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate here for you with Nuzzle House Audio. I am Glenn Nuzzles. So where did we leave off in our last chapter? Uh, Avis's dad wrote his book, which is great. He was really banking on that for helping society and making a new career for himself, but the book was suppressed, as Ernest called it. <clears throat> it was suppressed even to the point where, when he got a socialist magazine publisher to publish the book, the post office of all places stepped in and said, this isn't good for us to be mailing out to people. Which, I don't know if that was the case in the past as a real thing, but... If that were to happen today, I think people would be pretty weirded out that the post office would have so much say. Uh, things aren't going well for the post office. Everyone's using other services. Mainly just because people buy stuff off of Amazon or whatever. And you'd think the post office would be more than happy to mail anything to you at all. Ernest was offered a job a few chapters ago, mainly to keep him quiet, but now he might have a job as a senator, which I'm sure he'll get the position. And of course, Ernest being Ernest, he has to be dramatic about it and talk at length about how he's going to get shot and he's too real for everyone. So he's one of those kind of people to work with. Uh, the socialists... We're fighting the oligarchy. 
And every time they protested, the oligarchy found new ways of shutting them down. So it's kind of a cold war between them. Uh, and then... So that was dramatic. But then it was the Black Hundreds, a group of hired rabble-rousers by the oligarchy to go mess things up, to burn places down. And I think the surprising thing for me is that the uh, clergy or pastors at the pulpit talked openly about how great the Black uh, Hundreds are. So that's a little weird. Would that happen today? I have no comment. So on to the story. Chapter 11. The Great Adventure. Mr. Wixen did not send for father. They met by chance on the ferry boat to San Francisco. So that the warning he gave father was not premeditated. Had they not met accidentally, there would not have been any warning. Not that the outcome would have been different, however. Father came of stout old Mayflower stock, and the blood was imperative to him. Ernest was right, he told me, as soon as he returned home. That's the first thing anyone talks about in this story, is how Ernest is right. Ernest is a very remarkable young man, and I'd rather see you his wife than the wife of Rockefeller himself, or the King of England. Yeah, boy. What's the matter? I asked in alarm. Oh, Avis gets to speak. The oligarchy is about to tread upon our faces, yours and mine. Wixen as much as told me so. He was very kind for an oligarch. He offered to reinstate me in the university. What do you think of that? He, Wixen, a sordid money grabber, has the power to determine whether I shall or shall not teach in the university of the state. But he offered me even better than that, offered to make me president of some great college of physical sciences. That is being planned. The oligarchy must get rid of its surplus somehow, you see. Do you remember what I told that socialist lover of your daughters, he said? I told him we would walk upon the faces of the working class. And so we shall. As for you... I have for you a deep respect as a scientist, but if you throw your fortunes in with the working class, well, watch out for your face, that is all. <laughs> and then he turned and left me. It means we'll have to marry earlier than you planned, was Ernest's comment when we told him. I could not follow his reasoning. But I was soon to learn it. It was at this time that the quarterly dividend of the Sierra Mills was paid, or rather should have been paid for. Father did not receive his. After waiting several days, Father wrote to the secretary. Promptly came the reply that there was no record on the books of Father's owning any stock, and a polite request for more explicit information. I'll make it explicit enough, confound him, Father declared probably getting toxic, and departed for the bank to get the stock in question from his safe deposit box. Ernest is a very remarkable man, he said when he got back and while I was helping him off with his overcoat. I repeat, my daughter, that man of yours is very remarkable young man. Oh, is a very remarkable man. I had learned 
Whenever he praised Ernest in such fashion, to expect disaster. They have already walked upon my face, Father explained. There was no stock. The box was empty. You and Ernest will have to get married pretty quickly. Father insisted on a laboratory methods. He brought the Sierra Mills into court, but he could not bring the books of the Sierra Mills into court. He did not control the courts, and the Sierra Mills did. That explained it all. He was thoroughly beaten by the law, and bare-faced robbery held good. It is almost laughable now when I look back at it, the way Father was beaten. <laughs> what a jerk. He met Wixen accidentally on the street in San Francisco, and he told Wixen that he was a damned scoundrel. And then Father was arrested for an attempted assault fined in the police court, and bound over to keep the peace. It was all so ridiculous that when he got home, he had to laugh himself. But what a furor was raised in the local papers! Exclamation point. There was grave talk about the bacillus of violence that infected all men who embraced socialism, and Father, with his long and peaceful life, was instanced as a shining example of how the bacillus of violence worked. Also, it was asserted by more than one paper that Father's mind had weakened under the strain of scientific study, and confinement in a state asylum for the insane was suggested. Nor was this merely talk. It was an imminent peril, but Father was wise enough to see it. He had the bishop's experience to lessen from, and he lessened well. He kept quiet, no matter what injustice was perpetrated on him, and really I surprised his enemies. There was the matter of the house, our home. A mortgage was foreclosed on it, and we had to give up possession. Of course there wasn't any mortgage, and never had been any mortgage. The ground had been bought outright, and the house had been paid for when it was built. And a house and lot had always been free and unencumbered. Nevertheless, there was the mortgage properly and legally drawn up and signed with a record of the payments of interest throughout the number of years. Father made no outcry. He had been robbed of his money, and so he was now robbed of his home. And he had no recourse. The machinery of society was in the hands of those who were bent on breaking him. He was a philosopher at heart, and he was no longer even angry. I am doomed to be broken, he said to me. <laughs> but that is no reason that I should not try to be shattered as little as possible. These old bones of mine are fragile, and I've learned my lesson. God knows I don't want to spend my last days in an assailant asylum, which reminds me of Bishop Morehouse, whom I have neglected for many pages. But first, let me tell of my marriage. In the play of events, my marriage sinks into ins insignificance. I can't read today. I know, so I shall barely mention it. Now we shall become real proletarians, Father said, when we were driven from our home. I have often envied that young man of yours for his actual knowledge of the proletariat. Now I shall see and learn from myself. They're treating being a proletariat like, all idealistically like, Sucks to this, I'm going to go become a deadhead. Or what would it be now? Wide, widespread panic? Fish. Fish is the new. Touring with fish. That's what they're treating it like. 
Father must have strong in him the blood of adventure. He looked upon our catastrophe in the light of an adventure. No anger nor bitterness possessed him. He was too philosophic and simple to be vindictive. And he lived too much in the world of mind to miss the creature comforts he was giving up. So it was, when we moved to San Francisco into four wretched rooms in the slum south of Market Street, that he embarked upon the adventure with the joy and enthusiasm of a child. Combined with the clear sight and mental grasp of the extraordinary intellect, he really never crystallized mentally. He had no false sense of values. Conventual or habitual values meant nothing to him. The only values he recognized were mathematical and scientific facts. My father was a great man. He had the mind and soul that only great men have. In ways, he was even greater than Ernest, than whom I have known none greater. Even I found some relief in our change of living. If nothing else, I was escaping from the organized ostracism that had been our increasing portion in the university town ever since the enmity of the nascent oligarchy had been incurred. And the change was to me likewise adventure, and the greatest of all, for it was love adventure. The change in our fortunes had hastened my marriage, and it was as a wife that I came to live in the four rooms on Pell Street in the San Francisco slum. And this out of all remains, I made Ernest happy. I came into his stormy life, not as a new perturbing force, but as one that made toward peace and repose. I gave him rest. It was the guardian of my love for him. Oh, she finally gets to take care of the Christ. It was the one infallible token that I had not failed to bring forgetfulness or the light of gladness into those poor, tired eyes of his. What greater joy could have blessed me than that? Those dear, tired eyes. He toiled as few men ever toiled, and all his life he had toiled for others. That was the measure of his manhood. He was a humanist and a lover. And he, with his intricate spirit of battle, incarnate spirit of battle, his gladiator body <laughs> and his eagle spirit. We're learning more about Ernest right now than I think we have in the last, like, ten chapters. He was as gentle and tender to me as a poet. He was a poet, a singer in deeds. And all his life he sang the song of man. And he did it out of sheer love of man. And for man he gave his life and was crucified. There's that Jesus connection I was looking for. And all this he did with no hope of future reward. In his conception of things there was no future life. He, who fairly burnt with the immortality, oh, with immortality, denied himself immortality. Such was the paradox of him. He was so warm in spirit, was dominated by that cold and forbidding philosophy, materialistic monism. I used to refute him by telling him that I measured his immortality by the wings of his soul. 
and that I should have to live endless eons in order to achieve the full measurement, whereat he would laugh, and his arms would leap out to me. He would call me his sweet metaphysician, (laughs) and the tiredness would pass out of his eyes. That's a really cute pet name. And into them would flood the happy love light. That was in itself a new and sufficient advertisement of his immortality. Also, he used to call me his dualist. (laughs) He would explain how Kant, by means of pure reason, had abolished reason in order to worship God. And he drew the parallel and included me, guilty of a similar act. And when I pleaded guilty, as charged, but defended the act as highly rational, he but pressed me closer and laughed as Only one of God's own lovers could laugh. (laughs) I was wont to deny that heredity and environment could explain his own originality and genius. Any more than could the cold groping finger of science catch and analyze and classify that elusive essence that lurked in the constitution of life itself. I held that space was an apparition of God and that soul was a protection of the character of God, and when he called me his sweet metaphysician, (laughs) I called him my immortal materialist. Materialist. I am having a tough time today. And so we loved and were happy, and I forgave him his materialism because of his tremendous work in the world performed without thought of soul gain thereby, and because of his so exceeding modesty of spirit that prevented him from having pride and regal consciousness of himself and his soul. Oh, but he had pride. How could he have been an eagle and not have pride? His contention was that it was finer for a finite mortal speck of life to feel godlike than for a god to feel godlike. All right. And so it was that he exalted what he deemed his morality. He was fond of quoting a fragment from a certain poem. He had never seen the whole poem, and he had tried vainly to learn its authorship. I here give the fragment, not alone because he loved it, but because it epitomized the paradox that was that he was in the spirit of him, all right, and the conception of his spirit. For how can a man with thrilling and burning and exaltation, recite the following and still be a mere mortal earth, a bit of fugitive force, an effervescent form. Here it is. I'm about to read a poem. Joy upon joy and gain upon gain are the destined rites of my birth, and I shout the praise of my endless days. To the echoing edge of the earth. Though I suffer all deaths that a man can die to the utmost end of time, I have deep drained this, my cup of bliss, in every age and clime. The froth of pride, the tang of power, the sweet of womanhood. I drained the less upon my knees, for oh, the draught is good. I drink to life, I drink to death, and smack my lips with song. For when I die, another 
I shall pass the cup along. The man you drove from Eden's grove was I, my lord, was I. And I shall be there when the earth and the air are rent from sea to sky. For it is my world, my gorgeous world, the world of my dearest woes. From the first faint cry of the newborn to the rack of the woman's throes. Packed with a pulse of unborn race, torn with a world's desire, the surging flood of my wild young blood would quench the judgment fire. I am man, 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 from the tingling flesh <laughs> to the dust of my earthly goal, from the nestling gloom of the pregnant womb to the sheen of my naked soul, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the whole world leaps to my will, and the unslacked thirst of an Eden cursed shall harrow the earth for its fill. Almighty God, when I drain life's glass of all its rainbow gleams, the hapless plight of eternal night shall be none too long for my dreams. This is a long poem. The man you drove from Eden's grove was I, my lord, was I. And I shall be there when the earth and the air are rent from sea to sky. For it is my world, my gorgeous world. Is this like a chorus? Like This is like a song? The world of my dearest delight. From the brightest gleam of the Arctic stream to the dusk of my own love night. Ernest, always overworked, is wonderful constitution kept him up but even that constitution could not keep the tired look out of his eyes his dear tired eyes exclamation point he never slept more than four and one half hours a night yet he never found time to do all the work he wanted to do he never creased from his activities as a propagandist and was always scheduled long in advance for lectures to working men's organizations then there was the campaign. He did a man's full work in that alone. With the suppression of the socialist publishing houses, his meager royalties ceased, and he was hard put to make a living, for he had to make a living in addition to all his other labor. He did a great deal of translating for magazines and scientific and philosophic subjects, and uh, coming home late at night, worn out from the strain of the campaign, he would plunge into his translating and toil on well into the morning hours. And in addition to everything, there was his studying. To the day of his death, he kept up his studies, and he studied prodigiously. And yet he found time in which to love me and make me happy. But this was accomplished only through my merging my life completely into his. I learned shorthand and typewriting and became his secretary. He insisted that I succeeded in cutting his work in half. So it was that I schooled myself to understand his work. Our interests became mutual. And we worked together and played together. And then there were our sweet stolen moments in the midst of our work. Just a word or a mm, caress or a flash of love light. Love light apparently seems to be a real thing. Um... I want to know what that is. 
and our moments were sweeter for being stolen. For we lived on the heights, where the air was keen and sparkling, where the toil was for humanity, and where sordidness and selfishness never entered. We loved love, <laughs> and our love was never smirched by anything less than the best. And this out of all remains. I did not fail. I gave him rest. He who worked so hard for others, my dear, tired-eyed mortalist. And that was Chapter 11 of The Iron Heel by Jack London. The Great Adventure. What did we, uh, what did we learn? We learned that even a college professor can lose his home. And when he does, he gets real excited about it. So I guess that's something you can expect from ever wanting to marry a college professor. No stability. And they moved into a San Francisco slum. Uh, Ernest and Avis decided to get married, and the dad can't pay for it. He tried, which I thought was weird, he tried to cash in on his Sierra Mills, or Sierra Mines, uh, stock. Which you'd think he'd feel guilty for having, because it's supposed to be this horrible company. But he tried to cash in on it. And they said you'd never had stock to begin with, so get lost. Uh, we learned that Ernest, uh, we learned a little bit more about him as a person. And Avis got to speak more casually, and that's kind of nice. Uh, we learned that the best Ernest can do when it comes to being romantic is give his new wife pet names like Sweet Metaphysician and The Tiniest Duelist. Uh, and her nickname for him that they say in the throes of passion is you're my immortal materialist these two are the most boring people on earth and we got to read the worst poem in the world that was pretty weird so that was it for chapter 11 the great adventure uh, tomorrow I'll be reading chapter 12, and I don't hate this book so much, because now it's not just Ernest talking, we're actually getting some story, we're learning about people, uh, I've got high hopes, I think this is going to turn out to be a winner after all, and I hope to see you next time. <laughs>